You're listening to Inspirational Perspective with Linnell Harris. Inspirational Perspective is all about murdering mediocrity and living the best life possible. Are you living the best life possible? You can subscribe to the Inspirational Perspective blog at www.inspirationalperspective.com. Follow Linnell on social media. Go to Facebook and like the Facebook page, Inspirational Perspective. You can also follow Linnell on Twitter and Instagram at the handle Linnell Harris. In this recording, Linnell reflects on the top 10 observations from 2014. He invites his radio audience to share their reflections as well. Let's join the conversation. Today, what I would like to do is take us back. Take us back and help us reflect on 2014. And and this is how... I'm thinking about it, okay? To help us and guide us into a better 2015, I would like to take a look at the past year, which is 2014, to extract what wisdom we can to use as a guide into the future. I have 10 topics, 10 topics. However, these topics are observations that I have from 2014, but here's the one caveat. I want to I want you all to share your observations from 2014. And in a moment, I'm going to share my top 10 observations and then we can dive into that. But when you call in with your observation, I'm looking for what reflections you have and what wisdom you can offer that will guide us into 2015. All right. So I know we have a lot of personal passion around some of the things that happened last year. I know we have a lot of perspectives and opinions. That's good. But along with that perspective and opinion, what I'm looking is for what wisdom can you extract from that that will help us all as we begin to navigate 2015 and beyond. Now, to get us started, here are the 10 topics that I have or that I've thought about over the last couple of weeks in regards to things that I observed in 2014 that I believe we should really be paying attention to as we move through 2015. And like I said, I'm going to go all over the place with this, right? So a little bit of technology, a little bit of uh, social or uh, political uh, issues. I'm also talking about uh, some of the uh, global issues that we have, global economic issues, and then also some of the things that we deal with right here. So without further ado, here are the top 10 topics. And then you know, basically give me a phone call when moved and we'll basically go through each of these topics. We'll try to spend 10 to 15 minutes on on as many of the topics as possible so we can have a fruitful time together. All right. So here are the 10 topics that I have in regards to observations. So the first one is a technology observation, and that is the rise of the smartwatch. Now, some of you might say, ah, what's the big deal, Linnell? Believe me, believe me. I I have more to share there, and I'll come back to that. I I doubt I get a lot of phone calls on that one, but I have something I'll share with you all because it's somewhere that we should be looking. This trend is going to change how we look at technology. It's also going to change how we interact with one another, okay? Very much like the, uh, the cell phone did. All right, the second one is the rise of Asia, the rise of Asia. As those of you who follow Inspirational Perspective on a regular basis know already, I do a lot of traveling. And in 2014, I had the opportunity to, to travel to three different Asian countries. 
Hong Kong, or as some know, is now a part of the Republic of China, Indonesia, and South Korea made some very interesting observations over there and things that we should be thinking about here in the States because we live in a global world. And in a global world, what happens on the other side of the world impacts us all here, regardless of who we are. And speaking of globalization, number three is globalization and infectious disease. How do we think about that? Uh, we had the circumstance or the situation with Ebola this year. And um, there's a lot of reasons why it got as bad as it did. I have a perspective on that. I'm pretty sure that you do as well. Um, number four, this is one that I'm sure a lot of you all are really happy about. Low gas prices. What's, what's up with that? What's up with low gas prices? I mean, one, hallelujah for it. But two, like, how did that come about? What, what's the, what is this all about? And is this something that we can anticipate uh, going forward in 2015, I have a perspective. It's mine, but I would love to hear from you all as we tackle that particular topic. And then number five. Number five is the power of social media. Big one. Very big one. But the power of social media. Hey, I bet you haven't realized that Twitter is eight years old and Facebook is 10 years old. So in essence, they're basically adolescents. However, these two adolescents are causing quite a bit of ruckus <laughs> if, if, if you really think about it. And there's a whole lot more, you know, in, in regards to how we interact with social media and how social media is impacting social change. And I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that. OK, number six is the reality of getting hacked and moving into the 21st century where the the idea of privacy is basically gone, basically gone. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, often I look at young people and I think to myself, wow, how, you know, how tough it is, how tough is it to grow up in a world of social media? But even for us who are adults, we have to learn how to adapt. We must learn how to adapt because, you know, there really is no privacy and we all are at risk of getting hacked. You know, not so much we have to worry about our social uh, our social security numbers and our credit cards anymore. Now you have to worry about a lot of the personal information you carry around on your cell phones and your laptops. We'll talk more about that. And then number seven, black lives matter. Yes, they do. And I know you all have a lot to say about that. And so definitely want to cover that topic. Number eight, the legalization of marijuana. Big deal. And I'll tell you, I know it's a big deal when it creeps into the boardroom as an executive. When I'm sitting around the table with with other peers and we are having a serious conversation about the changes in litigation and how it impacts the corporate space and trying to figure out what it is that we should or should not be doing in, in regards of uh, of marijuana. Then that tells me that this is something that we need to be watching. And I anticipate that we'll see lots of lobbying in 2015 in anticipation of votes in 2016, but more to come on that. All right. Number nine is in the NFL and domestic abuse, the NFL and domestic abuse, a whole lot of that in the news this year. And I know that you all have a perspective on that as well. So by all means, uh, I would love to hear what you have to say about that. And then number 10, the things that we've already forgotten and i'll close the show with that we may actually hit on some of it but i'll tell you i think that we've forgotten about it and so i will be surprised 
if we do. But believe it or not, I'm talking about things that happened in 2014. These are all things that happened in 2014 and uh, things that we should still be concerned about, still be thinking about, still have in our peripheral. But for some reason, we do not. And so I'll close the show with five things that we've already forgotten going into 2015. I got Joseph here today. Joseph is supporting me. And, uh, you know, he'll probably even join into the conversation if he likes. And uh, he'll be the person picking up the phone. So make sure you say Happy New Year to Joseph and thank him for the support that he's providing us today to make this show possible. And again, the phone number to do that, 773-591-1690. We got a caller already. I'm going to go ahead and move to the phone lines, all right? We got Keith. Keith from right here in Bronzeville. How are you? Okay, now Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. All right. I, I know you got a lot of subjects, but the one that hit me was the gas prices. And I thought you might have some insight that, you know, that's not generally uh, known. So if you could go into, like you just said, why why the gas prices are down so much, the supply and demand or whatever those technicalities are that you might know of. And, and if you think that it would, was going to stay that way through sometime in 2015. Yeah, I could definitely provide some uh, some perspective on that. You know, the way the way I look at it is, you, you know, big oil. And this is me talking. Remember, this is my opinion. And this is right, how right. I, I, I kind of siphon through the news and, and take a look at what's happening. But in my opinion, big oil is officially under attack. And the reason I, I say officially under attack is because, you know, they've been in the crosshairs of uh, environmentalists uh, for quite some time, you know. Uh-huh. But in 2014, uh, I think that. We're going to really we're starting to see the evidence of a brand new reality come to play for oil and gas companies moving forward. And part of the reason for that is America, we've decreased our imports uh, in regards to foreign oil dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, and so due to, you know, that's a political shift. Right. That's something that uh, President Obama you know, back in 2008 talked about doing. And now we're starting to see in some ways uh, the evidence, you know, of that begin to uh, take root right here at home. But it's more than to make to make up for the imports. Is that done through our own domestic production? That's correct. That's correct. Really? Yep. And so we're we're actually producing uh, more domestic oil than we have in a really long time. So you take that. And then to to in some ways to almost pile on top of it. Right. You have this price war that's taking place between that's going that's that's happening right now between some of the world's largest crude oil manufacturers and those countries. Okay. Um, so one that comes to mind right now is uh, Nigeria who is, you know, basically, yeah, yeah, they're trying to figure out that's one of the main uh, sources of revenue for that country. Um, the same thing with Iran. And they're trying to figure out, all right, so, you know, America's not consuming as much oil. Uh, you know, where do we find a- another m- market, right? And for Iran, who has been under consistent, you know, uh, embargoes and constraints, that's one of the major forms of revenue for them. Same for Nigeria. And so in a lot of ways, these countries, not just Nigeria and Iran, but these countries are trying to figure out how to become uh, relevant in this new oil market. And so you see the prices dropping. 
And, and it's, well, it's, it's competition and price pressure and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw one more curveball. I'm going to throw one yeah. more curveball in regards to this particular topic. Car manufacturers, and this is completely different, right? This is, again, this is Linnell just kind of talking and, and chatting about this and having thought about this in, in detail in some ways. That's how it made the list for me in regards uh-huh. to things that we should really consider. The other thing to think about is car manufacturers are making more electric cars than they ever have, right? Now, I don't believe, so one of, part of the question that you asked was, hey, you know, uh, is... Um, do you think that this is going to, you know, stay the way it Man. is? Or what's, what, what do you think is going to happen in 2015? You know, yeah. really, I don't know. I, I don't know. The, you know, right. the, the oil market is fickle. If you can remember when, in 2008, Barack Obama, when President Barack Obama was running for office, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, gas began to slide. You, can you recall that? Yeah. Um, back in, 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 actually, it was 2007, I'm sorry, right before the, you know, the, the, the two, no, 2008, it was 2008, uh, uh-huh. before the election. And the, the, the prices began to slide uh, just basically out of nowhere. And before that, there was all this conversation about, well, you know, oil reserves and, you know, supply. If you can remember, we were concerned about the supply uh, of oil globally. Mm-hmm. And, and so now fast forward. And what is it? Six years later, all of a sudden we have more oil <laughs> than we. It's not a concern. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's not a concern at all. Right. It's. um. I think U.S. oil prices began the year above $90 a barrel, and they were rising slowly in the spring, and then the price of a barrel, uh, I believe around June, peaked out about uh, $107, and then the prices began to fall because the supply became more robust. The, the global thirst for crude oil began to slacken, um, so one that creates uh, you know, a downfall in prices, the weakening demand. And part of the, the reason I believe the demand is becoming weaker is not just because of the supply, but also because as global citizens, we are really thinking hard about global warming. And so we're saying, okay, how do I lower my consumption rate? You have large organizations trying to figure out how to lower the consumption rate. Yeah. And, and then speaking to the future, we're producing more electric cars than we ever have. I think Tesla just announced that they have uh, the, their, their new electric engine can now go 400 miles off a single charge. 400 wow. miles. And a Tesla is, is no joke, right? That car can go zero to 60 in what, four to six seconds? Yeah, it's not so, a slow car. <laughs> it's not yeah. a slow car. So, you know, that, you know technology is, is changing things. And... I'm very, you know, this is something that I'll be watching. I think all of us are watching because it impacts our pocketbook, right? But, you know, every time I go to the gas pump and then, you know, I got to put premium in my car. But when I'm paying two and a, two and a quarter for premium. Right, what? right, right. <laughs> yeah, because now we're really realizing how much money we actually spent. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm curious, just like you are, to see what happens. You know, my gut tells me that it's probably going to oscillate a bit, but I, I would not be shocked. If we continue to pump gas throughout 2015 for two bucks a a gallon, I wouldn't be Yeah, I would not be sure. Hey, there's a funny uh, picture on Facebook. People are probably seeing it. It's got Mike Epps, and he's saying $5 is officially gas money again, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, because you can put two (laughs) gallons in the car, man. You can go somewhere on that. What's that, 60 miles for most cars? Yeah, you can go somewhere on that. All right, thanks a lot, man. It was good information. No, no, you're welcome. Keep listening. All right. All right.
Good so call I, from Keith Wilson. All right, so we knocked out that topic. Hopefully you, you guys uh, I answered any questions. If, if there's anything else you can provide us in regards to the falling price of gas or any information you have, I would love to, to hear from you. Um, but that is, that is my take. It's simple as this, right? Low demand, high supply, could it basically equal lower gas prices than what we see now? And um, I guess we'll see how this goes in 2015. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, uh, but, you know, of, of all the things that we have on the horizon, I think that's one bright spot, right? <laughs> that's one bright spot. Nothing like gassing up your car for, uh, you know, to fill up a tank and, and not spending uh, uh, 80 to to $100. And I, I can recall when it was getting close to, your five dollars that uh it we got quite expensive it got quite expensive so that's good stuff you could now five dollars you can get a gallon of milk and a gallon of gas <laughs> that's good stuff all right so we're discussing the top 10 or my top 10 observations from 2014 definitely want to hear your perspectives uh we already talked a little bit about the uh fall in gas prices but some of the other things we're talking about are the rise of smartwatches, the rise of Asia, globalization and infectious disease, the power of social media, the reality of getting hacked, uh, Black Lives Matter, the legalization of marijuana, the NFL and domestic abuse. And as I shared before, things that we've already forgotten that took place in 2014. So let me let me hit the rise of the smartwatch, because I'm sure some of you are actually scratching your heads and saying, well, you know, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? Like, why is that a big deal? Um, and, you know, for me, it's a big deal because when I was a child, I love sifting through the Sunday newspaper. And uh, I wasn't really concerned with the news. Right. I was a little boy, maybe, you know, 18 years old. Um, I was so I wasn't concerned with the news, but what was really important to me was the comic strips. I used to love the comic strips, man. And they, you know, they would always be buried in the middle of the sales ads. And, uh, you know, that was included in the Sunday paper. And uh, one of my favorite comic strips was Dick Tracy. You remember Dick Tracy, Joseph? Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dick Tracy, man. And Dick Tracy, for those of you who aren't familiar with him, maybe the young bucks out here, because uh, I think the rest of us remember. Uh, Dick Tracy was this quick-witted detective, and he wore a yellow hat and an overcoat, a yellow overcoat, and uh, he had a smartwatch that he would talk into. Um, like, he got in trouble, he'd be like, you know, hey, I'm in trouble, I'm in the basement over here, and, you know, they'd come and find him, and, uh, you know, it also gave him information and told him things, and uh, it's crazy because that was 30 years ago, 30 years ago, and now 30 years later, I actually own my very own smartwatch, right? So maybe that's how I made, you know, the list of top 10 observations for 2014. But I also like to look at these things from a business perspective, okay? And, you know, I, I can remember when I first got into, so I'm in the wireless business. I'm an executive for a wireless company. And I remember when texting first came out, some of the conversations about texting was, ah, oh, it's not going to catch, it's too cumbersome, people aren't going to like it, it's easier just to pick the phone up and call. And now look, texting is probably one of the main vehicles of communication in 21st century. And so these new technologies come out, and early adapters usually move towards them, and I, I would, you know, I'll admit I'm a bit of a geek and an early adapter. Um, but 
there's a couple of things that I'm I'm curious about in regards to the debut of the the smartwatch in 2014. I'm first, I'm certain that the smartwatch is going to take the globe by storm in 2015. Uh, so I'm 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 pretty certain of that, okay? So, you know, next year you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, often when I look at these things, I'm looking at the figures, I'm telling you. Uh, I really think it's going to say, you know, those of you who right now who are like, what? Come July, August, you're going to have your own like, I don't even believe I'm wearing this thing. Okay. Uh, Part of it is because, you know, one, the health benefits, you know, tracks your calories, eating meetings. Basically, if I if I want to remind myself of anything, I could basically just, you know, turn to the watch, touch the watch and say, okay, And then, hey, remind me to give Joseph a phone call tomorrow and it will basically ask me what time. And then it, it 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 saves it. And then tomorrow, if I said 9 a.m., it'll pop up on my watch and say, hey, give Joseph a phone call. I don't know about you. That's pretty cool. And it, along with it, telling me how many calories I burn, how many steps I take, how many stairs I climb, what my heart rate may be, um, how my sleep patterns are. I mean, it's, it's just the optimal health tool. Now, here's the other thing from a business perspective. OK. It's only a matter of time. Before some of these big watch brands like Rolex, Breitling, Movado, like these real luxury brands, begin to realize that they are under attack. Like they are under attack because before that is what I aspired to. I don't know about you, Joseph, but what kind of watch did you think about, you know, uh, when you like when I when, when when you make it, when you say I made it. What kind of watch would you be wearing? I thought about the Rolex. Okay, the Rolex, right? Yeah, you would be wearing the Rolex. But tomorrow, you might say, ah, I'm straight on the Rolex. I'm going to go get you know this digital watch that tells me everything I needed to know. Right? So what does that mean for these big watchmakers, right? Rolex, Breitling, Movado. I mean, there's a whole bunch more, right? Even some of the, the uh, economics, you know, Seiko, Timex. You know, some some of these uh, other brands that we're more familiar with. What does that mean for them? Now, some of the brands that some of you guys have, like Michael Kors, he can fall back on fashion. But the reason I brought up, you know, these brands that are known for watchmaking is because what I do believe is if they don't figure out how to begin to blend technology into their devices in the near future, they could become much like Kodak. Because remember, Kodak was a big deal. Kodak was a real big deal or blockbuster, right? I mean, they were big deals uh, back, you know, two decades ago. And now, where are they? With the invention of the camera phone and digital cameras, Kodak is basically what? They're doing motion pictures. I know they, they do some motion pictures and some other things, but they do not have the market share in regards to uh, cameras and technology the way you think they should when they were such a behemoth, you know, years ago. So what does that mean? Uh, you know, what, is this, what does that mean for, for uh, jewelry makers in the future? And so I think it would be interesting to see how jewelry makers respond in 2015. I know that uh, Tory Burke, who, you know, the ladies out there, I'm sure they know him. Uh, they know who that is. Uh, they basically just combined, I think, with Fitbit <laughs> for, you know, to have this, you know, nice, uh, smart watch. 
right? So it's nice and it's nice and beautiful. It's you know all engraved in gold. It's, it looks like a piece of jewelry, but also, you know, it's you know keeping up with your steps and integrated with your smartphone, uh, telling you how you slept the whole nine. So that'd be interesting. I thought that was a, a fun observation that we could make for 2014 and how it may play out in 2015. I'm going to move to the next one. Hey, hold on, Lanelle. Yeah. Now, we also had, um, remember with, what was his name? Michael Hasselhoff, I think. David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff. Knight Rider. Yep, Knight Rider. Oh, yeah, he had one, too. the car, and he's communicating with the car. And he used to talk to the car. Will we ever get to that point? I think so. Mm. Well, I mean, there's already technology that you can plug into a car that I believe is uh, like 2006 and above, 2007 and above. You can plug it into your car, and then you can take your phone and, and basically uh, perform your own dialysis, you know, diagnosis. You know, is it running effective? Are you, are you burning too much gas? Maybe you need to, you know, look at the, the, the tire pressure. Okay. Or, so basically that's just yeah. like to check the engine light and all yeah, that. Yeah, engine so, light and all that, so right? What if we get to the point, I'm saying like, he's still a kid, a kid. Meet me in the park a lot. <laughs> you think we, could, we would be able to do that? I don't know if it's going to happen in 2015, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the next decade, okay. you know, Audi, Audi already has a self-parking, uh, self-parking technology for a car where you can basically pull up and then, you know, tell the car to go park itself. <laughs> now, you know, you know, these cars that cost in the, the, the price is prohibitive, right? But with all technology, if you can remember back when the Blu-ray was brand new, it used to cost a thousand dollars, you know, two thousand dollars for a Blu-ray player, right? It's the hottest thing. Only only rich people had it. Now, you know, they're selling Blu-ray players for sixty bucks on Black Friday. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's one of those things where I, I do believe in the next decade, uh, and this is why I'm saying the jewelry, the jewelry makers, these watchmakers, they they got to watch. Well, you know, no pun intended. They got to watch them, right? So when you're looking at the next decade, let's say mm-hmm. um, we're looking at how technology would change everything. Looking at the next decade, remember the show The Jetsons? Yeah. Do you think we're coming up to that point? Uh, that's tough. You know, they were flying around in cars, and I'm not saying that. I'm not going to make that bold of a prediction. Not quite. Not yet. But, uh, you know, in regards to us being able to communicate with our cars, us being able to communicate with our homes, mm-hmm. us being, being able to communicate with each other via our watches and smartphones and other things around us, I, I think we'll see that in the next couple of years. Okay. okay. Yep. Yep, absolutely. You know, hey, and, and maybe the car won't come to you, but you can say, hey, car, start. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's, <laughs> that's easy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's easy yeah. to think about right now, right? That's not hard to conceive. Yeah, because they got to do a lot of programming to make sure everything tests yeah. out right. Yeah. So that's some good stuff. Now, nah, thanks for jumping in there, man. All right, let's talk about the rise of Asia. Uh, so, you know, last year in July, I spent, well, first, you know, if you, if you have anything you want to say, you know, feel free to call in, 773-591-1690. Would love to hear your voice around any of these topics. I'm just moving to topic number two. So the rise of Asia. Last year in July, I spent some time in Hong Kong, um, Indonesia, and South Korea. And as you know, most of you all know who follow me, I work very hard to stay abreast of global news, global change, global impact. But I'll tell you, nothing can educate you quite like being physically present 
to observe what's happening in some of these countries and in some of these cultures. Now, I think we all can agree that China has proven itself to be a formidable world power. And Hong Kong is at the center of her financial prowess. Now, that's not the only thing that's compelling about Hong Kong, okay? When I was there, some of the things, one of the things I observed was the number of skyscrapers. You know, and I've been to almost every major, uh, uh, every major, you know, city in the United States. I've been to uh, most of the major cities in Europe. I've been to uh, all the major cities in India. And so I, I got a bit of a, you know, something to a perspective and something to kind of measure this up against. When I was in Hong Kong, I was blown away by how many skyscrapers I saw. I remember being in Panama. I was blown away by the, by the number of skyscrapers there simply because it's, uh, you know, it's a Central American city, Panama City. I mean, I just kind of shocked when I flew in, like, wow, a lot of skyscrapers. But Hong Kong, I mean, you ain't seen nothing until you've been to Hong Kong and you begin to see how many skyscrapers. In fact, Hong Kong has twice as many skyscrapers as New York with a lower population density. And and get this. Hong Kong also touts one of the world's smallest homicide rates for large cities. So and often the reason I'm sharing this is because often when we think about when we think about uh, other countries or other places, we, we tend to think of them as inferior to the United States. And what I've seen in my world travels is that some of these places are very attractive places to be. Uh, Hong Kong uh, being the financial center of China, very diverse, you, you know, uh, quite a few ethnic groups. I didn't see many black people. <laughs> Actually, I saw one sister in the mall after I'd been there a couple of days and we both kind of looked at each other. But she was going down the escalator. I was going up the escalator. We both kind of looked at each other like, what you doing here? But outside of that, I mean, you see a lot of other things. And, uh, you know, so Hong Kong is an interesting place. And I, I think... It really, it really uh, serves to, to show us that there are some really interesting things happening on the other side of the world. Now, one other thing, I was in Indonesia as well. And as you know, Indonesia is a tourist hub and quickly developing. And uh, one of the really cool things to see was when I was there, they were uh, in the mid, right at the end of a, a presidential election. And, the, you know, when I was watching the news, the big topic was, well, you know, would the old regime that had power for a long time remain in power or could this newcomer, this new president or new presidential hopeful and group, could they, you know, seize power? And this new group seemed to be more interested in the needs of the Indonesian people. And so what ended up happening is the new group, the new president ended up winning that election. And if you're watching anything in regards to the Air Asia flight, that president you see is the newly elected president who is not a part of the old power structure. Um, and so that country is developing. But I, 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 the last part of my trip was in South Korea. And I'm a, this is real simple. South Korea touts the title 
of the most technically advanced country in the world. I'll say that again. South Korea touts the title of being the most technically advanced country in the world. Yes, that means more technically advanced than the United States. I have nothing more to say about them. I mean, I think that will tell you in itself, and that alone speaks volumes about what's taking place in Asia right now. All right, I got a couple of phone calls. I got Bruce from the South Side. You wanted to say something about the watches. Yes, my comment is, you know, people don't buy Rolexes, uh, Rolexes, and those type of watches to be able to tell time. So a digital watch would not be in comparison to this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so I'm saying to you that this, so people don't buy Rolexes because they want to be able to tell time or all those gadgets. That's not why it's bought, and that's why I don't think the Rolex levels too outdated because we really buy it for the prestige. And also because sometimes the work for shit and, oh, yeah. and, the, and the costliness of the watch. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I, I, I completely agree with you that Rolex is, it is a status symbol. It, it is a status symbol. And so my question is, as we begin to evolve through this 21st century, do status symbols change? Like now, is it about how much my watch can do versus how expensive it is? It's just well, that, again, again, people don't see that that type of watch. You ain't buying it for what it can do. You ain't buying it to tell time. You ain't buying it to to uh, for someone to say, "Hey, you know, my watch tells." You already care to tell time. That's not what it's meant for. You know, it, it's just like the bravado. How many people look at a bravado and tell time on it? It's not meant to tell time. So what I'm saying to you, that's why I would not. The digital watch would not overtake that type of watch. You know, but that's that's so that I love that you gave gave me the phone. I appreciate that, man. And isn't that some of the same way that Kodak thought about uh, digital cameras? Like, oh, you know, the people who are really into photography, you know, they're not they're not snapping photos on their phone. You know, they're, they're more interested in, you know, developing the film. And really thinking about, you know, the craft itself. Um, you know, so that's where I, I think it's a great conversation. You know, I think neither one of us are right or wrong. It's just it's a perspective, man. And it, it's something to look at. Right. Yeah, well, you're right. And I think uh, the film industry, Kodak, that's a whole different type of industry. The technology kind of governs that that industry. You know, it's like it's like buying a. Uh, a computer, you know, five years, computers outdated. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I agree with you that when it comes to film or maybe something like technical when it comes to even a computer. But I, I'm just saying watch or even let's, let's take another example. Or you take a classic suit, take a Brooks Brothers suit. I don't care if it can be 10 years old. I mean, it, it, that, that Brooks Brothers suit was staying fast and was staying style at a bank, at, at a law office, law firm. But you go, that, that suit that may cost less money, but it's not a books brother. It's not 100% wood suit. It, it doesn't have that tailor-made look to it. So I'm trying to say sometimes, some things that would not go out, would not be outdated or not change 
because of class and because of the nature of the product. Okay. I, you know what? I can accept that. And I think that it'll be, it will be really interesting to watch the next couple of years and see what happens because you, you made some valid points. You know, hey, you know, people buy Rolex to, to make a statement. And so why am I wearing anything else? You know, but that same guy who was making the statement, who's rich, he also will have access to, you know, the car that can talk to the watch. He'll also have access to uh, to the home that he can turn his lights on and off with the watch. You know, so it's just one of those things. Does he want to use the watch? Does he want to use the cell phone? How do, how do they want to go about it? So, hey, thanks a lot for the phone call, Bruce. I appreciate it, no man. Problem. Good perspective. Thank you. Yep. Yep. All right. Good phone call. All right. I got I got Jeff. I got Jeff on the line here. Jeff, uh, you, you have a question for me. What's the question, brother? Yeah, I just want to know um, when we talk about globalization and when we talk about the outlook of African-American males who obtain a degree, mm-hmm. who already have it, and um, that's actually trying to pursue another job, do you think they need to actually deviate and change careers or – try to do something else man that's a great question one of the things and i whenever i'm talking to young people um i try to hit on this i think often even as african americans we look at our you know we look at our education uh the education we get you know bachelor's masters etc um here and we think about our competition as you know the people around us right so as a chicagoan I, I might say to myself, I need to get this degree. I need to get a good uh, grade point average so that way I can compete against uh, other Chicagoans uh, in this Chicago market. And the fact of the matter is that you're not just competing against Chicagoans. I mean, you're competing against people all over the world, all yeah. over the world. I mean, uh, the past two summers um, – uh, where I, where I where I where I'm employed, we've had um, each summer we've had interns from China. Um, wow. They can speak the language. Uh, they have a degree that is that that's from a Chinese university that's honored here, and they're looking to continue their education, whether it's for a graduate degree or something, uh, right here in the states. Um, and 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 so when you think about who you're competing against, we, we're now in a global market. And so you're not just competing against the person that you can see in the classroom. You're competing against someone else who right now in China, I don't know what time it is. It's either really early in the morning or just got late. It's probably really early in the morning, like maybe four or five o'clock in the morning. Right now in China, somebody's up studying. You know, they don't care that they just celebrated. Well, actually, the Chinese New Year is a little different. Right. But um you know, but they're 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 up. They're studying. They're trying to take it to the next level, and they're not just eyeing some of the major uh, Chinese markets and hubs. They're not just looking at Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong in regards to jobs. They're looking at Munich, Frankfurt, London, Chicago, New York, L.A. I mean, they're they're focused on the globe, and often we're not. Because we have this fear of the unknown, and this this uh, and that fear keeps us kind of siloed into our communities, uh, into our city, and sometimes just right here in our country. 
And, and that's one of the reasons why I encourage everybody to get a passport and get out there. Over the last hour, we've been discussing tips and observations, topics and observations from 2014. And the whole idea is to discuss these things to kind of guide us into a better 2015. I believe that this is an opportunity for us to take a look at the past year and extract what wisdom we can and use that as a guide for all of us into the future, this 2015 and beyond. And so over the last hour, we've been discussing 10 topics, um, and these topics are all observations from 2014. And some of the topics that we've already discussed are the rise of the smartwatch. Um, We talked about the rise of Asia. We also discussed the low gas prices and how, you know, what that may look like in 2015. Um, And so I want to move the conversation on. We still have quite a bit to talk about if we can get to it all. And the next thing that I wanted to bring up is globalization and infectious disease. Now, I just had a caller uh, before the break who uh, was basically asking the question in regards to education and globalization. And, you know, what degree should we get and what degree shouldn't we get? And, and, and part of my answer to him was, you know, one, definitely get the education. But two, we have to start thinking of our competition, not just in regards to the people that we can see, but also those that we can't because all over the world, there are people who are looking to compete with us for U.S. jobs. And that is definitely a reality and something that we should consider. The other thing that I didn't share with the young man who called in is often when we think about uh, working somewhere, We think about working somewhere, you know, here in our city. But then if we say, you know, I'll leave Chicago, I'll go somewhere else. Then we think about other places. We might think about California or New York, uh, maybe Atlanta. But do we ever consider some of the major global hubs around the world, uh, like London or Mumbai or Hong Kong? You know, so those are all things that we should consider. And I'll tell you. You know, racial discrimination is a very real thing. But in my travels, often what I find is I get treated better outside of the country by people who do not know me um, than those right here in the country that if something happened, I would be fighting side by side with. You know, it's just one of those unfortunate realities and something for us to consider. Um, Speaking of which, I want to discuss the topic of globalization and infectious disease. And my reflection here is this. In 2014, I think the world was taught a very important lesson. And that lesson was simply this, that the health and welfare of every country matters. The health and welfare of every country Matters And Ebola taught us this. Ebola taught us this lesson. Or at least I hope it has. (laughs) Because sometimes we could be really hard to teach. But when you think about Ebola and how it, you know, so this is a disease that's been around for a long time, right? I believe a scientist back in the 1970s, uh, you know, identified the strain and, and, and basically said, all right, this is something that's, you know, pretty, pretty serious. And, uh, you know, they dubbed it Ebola. 
Okay. Now, of the recent outbreak and or, you know, quote unquote epidemic, the initial traits of that outbreak um, was traced back to the end of 2013 in Guinea. All right. That's where it started to get out of control towards the end of 2013. And as the virus spread across West Africa, many of the world's most powerful countries completely ignored the height, the health crisis. I mean, they completely ignored this. And and of course, they ignored it until the media grabbed a hold of it and the media and all their glory and and sometimes foolishness. <laughs> um, they grabbed a hold of this story and then they created so much fear that at that point, the conversation became, what do we do? You know, this this virus can possibly begin to spread in our countries. And as they begin to consider the the impact of this virus and whether they should actually shut down their airports and close off West Africa, right? The the place that initially we was not we didn't care about, right? We we we, we didn't send in a bunch of uh, UN aid and health officials to help curb this crisis in these uh, in these countries. For whatever reason, I, I have my opinions. Um, but for whatever reason, we didn't do that. That wasn't done by the world powers that be. And then when it became uh, something to be afraid of, the conversation was, well, should we close our borders? Can we close our airports? And they couldn't. Not because they were so concerned with allowing West Africans the uh, liberty of traveling where they want to go, but because it would hurt them economically. <laughs> It always comes back to money. Always. Remember that. <laughs> it always comes back to money. It's not because, you know, they're so gracious, but often because it's going to hit them in the pocketbook. All right. And so when they realize, like, wait a second, we can't close those borders. We got to figure something out. Um, they went through the necessary screening process for for passengers who were coming in from those countries but then they also began to really address the health crisis in West Africa. Why did it have to get that bad? You know, that, that's, that's my question. So what do we learn from this? You know, because it's, it's fascinating how quickly the world's leaders forget that globalization is just a term. That it isn't, I'm sorry, just a term. But it also is a present reality that not only extends itself to our economic viability, but also our overall well-being and health as citizens of different countries. What happens in Africa impacts me here. What happens in the Middle East impacts me here. And until we really begin to think of the globe that way, and that no matter who the person is, no matter what color, no matter what they look like, if they are a human being and they breathe, I should be concerned with their well-being in some type of way. Otherwise, if you let it get out of control, it can and it will come to our borders. I think that's a, a big takeaway. Joseph, what you got for me, man? So now, now that you say that, it all comes down to money. I'm thinking about when President Obama, he, you know, made the little gesture about the immigrants. You know, they can stay and things like that. So all of that came down to money also? 
Uh, the fight is. Well, so keep this in mind. So, you know, President Obama signed an executive order. And there's a lot at stake when we talk about immigration, right? So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But just because you asked the question, I think it's an important question. Right. That's because I was yeah. thinking about when yeah, you said yeah, the yeah. It comes back to yeah. money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, now, did he do that because it came back to money or did he do, do it because he felt it was the right thing? And keep in mind, at the end of the day, yeah, I like President Obama a lot, but he's a politician. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so there are always underlying reasons why he may do something. I also believe that as all men uh, have, we all have beliefs and value factors that weigh into our decision making. So, it, you know, I'm not taking that away from the president. It could be it could have been something that was a belief and a strong value factor. Um, which is why he signed it in uh, as an executive order. Um, but I do believe the reason why Congress could not pass an immigration reform, uh, any uh, Im- immigration reform legislation is because that they were basically in a gridlock around not only the economic uh, backlash or uh, impact, not that it'd be a backlash, but impact, but also the voting impact because again remember that immigration reform is for minorities (laughs) there are very few individuals uh, of european descent in regards to the numbers and percentages who would be impacted uh, by that particular executive order and so when you think about voting and the republican party has already they took a, a beating in the last presidential election uh they're concerned about who the voters will be and by simply, you know, pinning an act, uh, the president, in some ways, we'll see how it plays out. And I'm not familiar with all the parts of the, the legislation but, or the executive order, but he basically created a new voting, a lot of new members of the voting class. I mean, you know, and, and okay. they're minorities. I got so how does that play out? Now, it'd be interesting when you see the Republicans swept, you know, they swept uh, the last election. But... <laughs> That might be to their own demise in the next uh, presidential election in 2016. We'll see. But what I do know, and I can say with absolute certainty, is that they still are not well-versed on the minority agenda. And so that scares them. It's a great question there. All right, so that's my view on globalization and infectious disease. It's also my view on immigration reform. (laughs) Hey, you got any questions? You got a perspective? Give me a phone call, 773 591 1690. We're just chatting about the top observations of 2014, some of the things that we uh, will be up against in uh, 2015. How do we think about that? How do we use what we've learned in the past as guidance for the future? Now, I promised the next place I would go is the power of social media. So I speak quite a bit uh, all over the country. And one of the things I talk about often is social media, because I think that it's misunderstood by just about everybody. What do I mean by that? You said, well, Linnell, what do you mean by social media being misunderstood? Well, I think that, one, people my age, Generation X, uh, we see it as simply a social tool or a business tool. And so we haven't really investigated all the positive and negative ramifications of social media. I believe that baby boomers or traditionalists who are above Gen X, you know, they kind of are adopting because that's the thing to do. 
Keep in mind, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, right? So I know there are exceptions. That's the thing to do, right? If I want to keep in contact with uh, my children, if I want to keep in contact with uh, my grandchildren, then I have to kind of get on this thing called Facebook uh, to see what's going on. And so uh, that's what I do, right? And then the younger generation, they're kind of at effect of social media because it's been around for a good portion of their life. And so they're just kind of moving in and out of it without really thinking about the overall ramifications and the impact it may have on their life 20 years from now. Here's the deal. And this is my perspective on social media. And I said this at the beginning uh, of the show. Facebook turned 10 years old last year, February, 10 years old. All right. And Twitter turned eight. The 21st century just turned 14 years old. So this century, the 21st century is right now being molded and formed for what basically historians will will say began uh, or kind of create, you know, what was created in the 21st century. So how things go now will really predict the outcome of how things go later. So keep that in mind as I'm talking, okay? And so Facebook is 10 years old, Twitter is eight years old. And in my mind, to still be adolescents, these two social mediums have created quite a bit of ruckus in this century so far. As a matter of fact, I believe we will never live the way we did before the birth of social media Again, we will never live that way again. That, that is over. That is over. So that being said, what is there to do? Well, think about it. We're connected in ways we can't even fathom and conceive. Now, and one of the things I'm going to talk about later, if we have time, is getting hacked and this whole idea of no privacy. But while you're sleeping, as long as your phone is plugged in, there is a wireless, invisible connection <laughs> that all the data on your phone is tethered to. And right now, well, well, typically when we think about it, we feel like we have the opportunity to choose what it is that we're sharing. But often what we're not realizing is we're sharing so much more. Google is tracking your location. Facebook is tracking your location. They're tracking everything you search. They're tracking everything you buy. Uh, the cookies on your computer are basically the breadcrumbs that they can use to follow you. Okay? And so the whole term or idea of privacy in this social media world is basically gone. And I'll talk more about that when I get to, you know, getting hacked. But here are a couple of things to prove my point, okay? Alone, a cell phone video has only finite power, okay? So let's say that Joseph took a video of me right now talking, you know, and that's on his cell phone. That only has finite power. You know, it's on his cell phone. He hasn't done anything to it. But once that same video is uploaded to social media, and any social media platform, its power instantly becomes exponentially increased. All right. And it only bends to the will 
of the people that like it and share it. Think about that. So when you think of it that way, a video can and has caused political unrest. A video can and will and has caused protest. And a cell phone video can and will and has ultimately created social change. Not just here in the States, but all over the world. That is the impact of social media. Now check this out. My second point. Before 2014, I had very little knowledge about ALS. Very little knowledge. I knew, I knew a little bit about it. I don't even know if I knew what the acronym meant. Then, hashtag ALS Ice Bucket Challenge happened. And all of a sudden, those of us who knew nothing about ALS, nothing about the disease that it supported, were doing the Ice Bucket Challenge all year long. Yeah, I mean, not all year long, but basically through the summer, the Ice Bucket Challenge was the thing to do. And we were either challenging other people or donating to the cause. ALS basically received more money than they had in, since the inception of the, the, the fund itself. <laughs> all because of social media. This is changing the world. It's changing who we make superstars. It's changing who is relevant. It's changing who is not relevant. It is changing everything. And then here's my third point. If you, if you still don't believe me <laughs> that social media is a big deal and a medium that is going to change or has changed the world in the 21st century forever. I still get tweets from Dr. Maya Angelou. How spooky is that? I still get tweets from Dr. Maya Angelou. And although she passed away in 2014, right? Uh, God rest her. And she was a, a, a definitely an African-American icon, a global icon. Social media will ensure that she continues to live on in our tweets and news feeds. So think about this. Our icons are taking on a different type of mortality, a digital immortality. How about that? And that's what social media does. That's what social media does. If I'm not mistaken, the last tweet I got from Dr. Maya Angelou was December 27th. And I'm waiting for her to tell me Happy New Year. <laughs> because somebody, somebody who was still managing her brand uh, knows that even though physically she's no longer with us, the spirit and brand of Dr. Maya Angelou still lives on, and that's what social media can do. Even after you're gone, what is your reverberating impact by the things that you share and by the brand that you build on social media? So number seven on my list of observations for 2014 is Black Lives Matter or hashtag Black, Black Lives Matter. And uh, definitely want to discuss this one before the end of the show. Let's, let's back all the way up in 2014. And I know that some of you all have perspectives I want to hear, so make sure you give me a phone call, 773-591-1690. 2014 
It's an interesting year simply because from the very beginning, it was marked with brimming racial tension all through the U.S. And almost from the very beginning of the year, this kind of took place. And the first place that it happened or it kind of you began to see something's going on here was the whole Donald Sterling fiasco where, you know, this whole fiasco kicked off. Um, the conversation when the former NBA franchise owner, he was recorded having a conversation with his mistress slash girlfriend, whoever she was, that she was not to bring, she was not to bring any of her black friends to his franchise's basketball games. All right. So that was, if you can remember, that's early 2014. That's when the whole conversation kind of, it's always been a conversation, but that's when the conversation in 2014 kind of made the, the news. And then you had NBA players who turned their jerseys inside out and, you know, they were making their own stand in regards to, you know, what Donald Sterling did. The NBA commissioner fined him, you know, two, two million plus some dollars and, and uh, banned him from the league, and he lost ownership of the L.A. Clippers. And for a short moment, everything seemed to be right with the world, right? Now, it wasn't clean, don't get me wrong, because, you know, he's not the only NBA franchise owner that's a closet bigot. (laughs) We can be certain of that, okay? But, you know, a standard was set, and that was a good thing. Then Darren Wilson shot an unarmed black man named Michael Brown and tensions that were only brimming heated to a boiling point. And here's the interesting thing about the media. They found everything in the world wrong with this guy, right? And I'm not saying Michael Brown was a church boy, but at the end of the day, he had a beating heart, He had a mother that loved him, like most of us do. He had wants and desires. He was a human being. Regardless of any mistake that that man made in his past, he was not in front of the judge when he got shot. He was not in front of the judge when he got shot. And I think that's how a lot of us feel. And right? he was still put on trial. And he was still put on trial. He was still put on trial. In his death, he was put on trial. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with Ferguson. And I wrote a blog about it. I wrote a note about it. You can, you can basically go to Inspirational Perspective and, and search, you know, hashtag Ferguson, and it'll pop up. There's a lot of things wrong with Ferguson. One of the major things is... Uh, the diversity within the police force. Something else is the diversity within the city council. In a city that is three-quarters African-American, there was no representation. Who's to blame for that? We are. Okay? All right, so there's a lot of things wrong with Ferguson. I think that we we can point fingers everywhere. But... Across the country, different people have different perspectives as to whether the subsequent verdict that declared Darren Wilson innocent was right or wrong. 
And here's what I do know. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no judge, and I cannot tell you whether it was right or wrong. That I cannot do. I, I don't know. Um, I have my opinions, and that is what they are, right? But it, I don't think any of us can ever tip the scales of justice and say it was right or is wrong. We weren't there. We don't know what happened. But here's what I do know. Black lives do matter. They matter. And I am a black man. And I know that I have a seed of greatness inside of me that I want to share with the world. And I have a soul. And I am a human being that breathes, that bleeds, that loves, and that will die like any other man. And what I do not want to happen is for someone to take my life. No one should take my life. Not a white man, not a black man, not an Asian man, not a Hispanic man. No one should take my life. And for that account, no one should take anybody's life. And so when any group of people has to organize themselves to declare that their lives matter to a country and to other people, something is wrong. And that I can say with ultimate conviction. And it needs to be rectified, and it needs to be rectified immediately. And that is what I have to say about that. Black lives matter, and... This is a conversation that this country needs to have. It is something that needs to be rectified. And the relationship that our peacekeepers, quote unquote, pun intended, peacekeepers have with black males has got to change. It has got to change. And that starts with all of us, everyone that is listening. We have an obligation to change that. We have an obligation to change the perception of the black male. We have an obligation to begin to, to halt any negative perceptions of the black male. And the best way we can do that is by how we spend our dollars. Because at the end of the day, I said it before, <laughs> that it all comes back to money. It all comes back to money. So number seven, Black Lives Matter. Love to hear what you all think about that. 773-591-1690. All right. So I've covered a number of topics at this point. Uh, we've talked about the rise of the smartwatch. That was a fun conversation. Um, the rise of Asia uh, and globalization. And then we also talked about globalization and infectious disease. Uh, we started off you know, a while ago with the whole conversation around low gas prices and then the power of social media. And then now black lives matter. Got something you want to say about that, Joseph? Yeah. Now think about uh, what you're saying about the rise of Asia and think about black lives matter. Mm -hmm. How come black, you know, the rise of the black community can't rise like that, like Asia? Because we have a limit to us. You know, we always dealing with the little racial aspect of things. Yeah. Maybe we need to change how we, you know, people view us. 
and how we view people, I guess, you know, just to change how, you know, others are looking at us. You know, that's a that's a that's a really good question, man. And, you know, how would how how I would answer that is there is a there is a sense of community in unity, typically in other uh, ethnic minority groups that we don't always share. And I'm not going to say we don't share, but I'm going to say that we don't always share. And that is, I think, the first place we have to look. We have to look. Unity creates power. Unity creates power. And, you know, we don't have to be unified on how to do it and, you know, all the mechanisms on how it's going to be done. But what we do need to get unified on is overall the objective. And I think the objective now that we have reached as a community is that black lives matter. And that's a conversation that we are definitely looking to have. And I think it's an opportunity for us to to really step up as a as a unified front and not get and not get so caught up in the in particulars. But rather, Joseph, I know that you care about this. I care about it. How we go about it might be different. We might have different ideologies. You know, you might want to protest one way. I think it should be done another way. And one way might be wrong and one way might be right. But the idea is we're going we're going for the goal and for the objective. And we're willing to engage in meaningful conversation and listen to each other to reach the objective. That's my opinion. And I think that's one of the things that we're missing. See, now, while we're trying to listen to each other, we always got each other we're trying to compete with. Well, like you said, the rise of Asia, they're learning how to compete with the whole country, everybody around them. Yeah. Well, you know, this it's the idea of if I have a dollar, who am I giving it to first? If I get, if, am I giving it to my brother? And I'm talking about not just giving away, but, you know, in, in exchange for service. service right. right. Am I giving it to my brother or am I giving it to someone else? And as a community, we own that on both sides. I own the decision to give the dollar to a brother or sister. And that brother or sister also owns the, the, uh, the responsibility to provide excellence. Excellence. Simply because my brother trusted me. And so I think there's, uh, there are some fundamental pillars that need to be addressed in our community uh, that can really strengthen us as a people and allow us to uh, to really gain some momentum early on in the 21st century, uh, because otherwise, divided we fall, united right. we stand, and that, and that's that's the that's just the, that's God's truth right there. Um, Ron out of Chatham, how are you, brother? Yeah, I'm good. Happy New Year to you, and uh, making some real good points. I want to really talk about the whole thing about uh, the economics in our community. I think it was Dr. Kendra Gill was on this morning. I didn't get a chance to give in. But what she said was African-Americans and Hispanics are the most disrespected people in this country. So, But you know what happened? I looked at it and said, but you know what? Hispanics, see, they're doing something about it. See, if you go in their community, they're engaging in commerce with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't stop people necessarily from having food, but you can prepare yourself and 
So, you know, what are we doing? But see, again, they, yeah, that, you, and, and not only in politics, I mean, in economics and politics, this whole thing about the immigration thing with mm-hmm. um, Barack Obama, he didn't wake up one morning and say, that's a, a, just, that's a nice thing to do. He understood that these people understand political leverage. See, we, mm-hmm. Dr. Claude Anderson said about five years ago, we're going to become extinct. And that's politically, economically. But, yeah, other people engage. We, we, we are not. And, I, and I'm just going to give one example that I will continue to, to use. Dominic's closed over on 71st and Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. In the so-called South Shore area, there was one time, I guess, where uh, middle-income black folks live, or right. whatever that means. Right, right, right. But, look, but he, let me let me tell you, you know what? If it closed in Chinatown, if it closed in Lil Pilsen, I guarantee you, they would not be begging. They would not be begging Dominic to stay. They would not be begging the mayor, anybody, mm-hmm. to, to bring a grocery store. So until, see, you know, for me until 2015, I'm not going to really comment on too much of anything until I see the black folks can feed themselves. But Claude Anderson told us. Yep, you can't feed yourself. And it's true. And yeah. every time, I what am I saying? We, the, the people over there, squawls, oh, we have to go so many miles away to a store. And we got all these so-called, really, they said there was so many, quote-unquote, educated black people that lived over in that area and had decent income, can't feed themselves. So we, we'll see what happened in 2015. Enjoy your show and have a good day. All right, you too, Ron. Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate that. Good point. And Ron, what I will say is there are individuals in our community who are we are. There are some who are we're engaging one another. Um, That's how we trade our dollar. That's where we that's how we do our business. And we need more of it. We need more. We need it to 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 go viral and spread. And then, you know, one of the things that uh, that really resonated with, with me that you said is this idea of asking for a grocery store and begging, you know, I, I think there's um, we've got to get to a point where we're not asking anymore. We're making it happen. We're making we like like you said, there are too many educated people in our community, enterprising people in our community uh, for for us to ask for someone else to come in and provide us something. We've got to begin to learn how to provide ourselves these things. And, and so I think that's the conversation to have. If it's a food desert, what can we do to change that? Forget the mayor, you know, and, and if we bring them in, then we need to be asking for, you know, the tax breaks and the, you know, the economic things that they pass on to organizations like a Dominic's and a Mariano's. But outside of that, what can we create? Take the next caller. Eric, you on the air. Hey, Linnell, thanks for having me on. Listen, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Listen, you know, I heard you, you mentioned about, um, you said the Black uh, Lives Matter, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to comment on that. And, Linnell, I want to ask you, because I went through this myself, this is a personal experience of mine, and I want to ask my listeners, my family out in the audience, Linnell, when you, when, what I'm saying, when you're frustrated and you're in a situation, okay, and when you find yourself that you can't get out of crisis, and do we tend, okay, I'm, I'm going to the march that's going on in Cleveland and uh, all the protesting that's going on now? 
Right. And what my my point is this, Hitler, now. When you're frustrated and when you're in a situation, who do you seem to strike? We, when you're hurt and frustrated, you seem to strike out at the person closest to you. Mm-hmm. You, you understand? Right. What I mean is that if I'm in a situation, do I, I'm, I'm really striking out at the real problem. Okay, like, like for instance, I can strike at, a, at the police. Because, see, if I strike at, a, at the police, and then that means that, hey, I got civil rights workers, I got church people, all going to stand behind me. But yeah. if I strike out at the brother on the corner, I'm not, I'm not going to strike out at him because, see, he'll retaliate against me, see. Yeah, well, and... and, and, and I, I mean, and, what I'm saying is, and if that's the real problem. What I'm saying is, if I'm going through a problem, and if I'm if I'm striking out at the wrong issue, see, and then I'm gonna strike out at the one that's closest to me. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not gonna strike out at the problem because if I strike out at the problem, and then I'm afraid I may be retaliated against. So is that what we're going through right now? I, I think so. I th- and thanks for the call, Eric. You make a really good point, man. I this is what I believe now, and I'm I'm an analytics guy. I spent years running global operations, and whenever we had a problem in the operation. Often we would jump at the first symptom, right? Oh, this over here is broken. Go after that. Go after this. And what I believe is, yeah, I mean, the, the, the uh, law enforcement is a symptom of our problem, but it is not the root. It is not the root. And what we need to do is address the root. And in my mind, the root is education and it's family. And we have to bring education and family to our own. If, you know, single moms, okay, we have them. Yeah, but we can still create community and family. Um, we can still care about a young person. I can recall somebody calling uh, some of the young men who engage in violence on the south side of Chicago savages. We can't do that. We can't because if we relate to them that way, then that's what they'll be. Um, so... You know, thanks for the call. And yes, I I believe that what we've been going after is symptoms and that we have to get to the root. And the root is the family and it's education. And until us as other black men can step up and be father figures, honorable father figures to young men who don't have fathers and honorable father figures to young women who don't have fathers and care then we'll continue to see some of the problems that we have. All right, last caller, Alvin from High Park. Got a couple of minutes, brother. You're on the air. Okay, how y'all doing? I'll speak real quick then. You know, from my perspective, it's about organization and and, and unity. You know, um, there was a time when we had various organizations, and those organizations would, would mobilize their members, and they would dispatch their members um, to a particular place at a particular time to address a particular issue. We no longer have that. Mm. So when you're talking about marching and doing these various things, you have a bunch of independent people. You know, I can rattle off a name of a couple of organizations, right. but not like mm-hmm. we did in, in the 60s. When you had leaders of organizations who, if you were a member of this organization, that's what you did. We need that, man. Without the, without, without the collective unity, you know, we can't do this thing. We need to be um, united because, you know, divided we fall, united we stand. Absolutely. That's what, see, our young people, they, they drift toward the games because that's unity. Yep. That's organization. Yep. And we need, basically, for, 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 just excuse the term, but we need a young gang of, of, of brotherhood, of love, and mm. of peace. And if we had that, and we could guide our young people toward that, 
and flip their minds from the games that they're in that are about destruction, violence, and negativity. If we can flip it, then we can win. Minus that, we're going to keep on spinning our wheels, doing what we've been doing, and going to keep getting what we've been getting. Man, Alvin, that's a beautiful way to end the show, man. Thanks so much for the phone call, brother. I appreciate that. Okay, my brothers, y'all be good. Yep, yep. Organization. And to Alvin's point, you know, we had it, and those organizations came under attack. And we're finding now that, you know, in some cases, it was the, the, the government that, you know, put our organizations under attack. And they were able to operate under a cloak of secrecy to break those organizations and dismantle those organizations that would be very difficult to do in a connected technical world. And so I do believe that it's time for us to, to, to take up uh, that call that you gave us and to get organized and teach leadership. So that way, if one leader falls, another one can rise. Um, we we got to be willing to pass the mantle and teach and teach and teach the competencies of leadership because there are competencies. We're not born that way. This episode of Inspirational Perspective was recorded at the Midway Broadcasting Corporation in Chicago, Illinois, on WVON 1690 AM, The Talk of Chicago. Thank you for listening. Go to the Inspirational Perspective Facebook page and like the page. Follow Linnell Harris on social media at the handle Linnell Harris. You can find him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with that handle. Text INSPIRED to 43783 to receive free inspirational quotes and updates.